You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. Welcome back to Regeneration Rising. I'm Taylor Mulia, and my guest today is a person that I met at a conference about six months ago. And he came up to me, he shook my hand, and said, Hello, my name is Pork Ryan, the Pork Evangelist. And I had a laugh. I said, What? <laughs> and uh, our conversation continued from there, and I knew I had to have him as a podcast guest. So, Pork Ryan is an international livestock educator and farm marketing coach really fun person to talk to. We had a great conversation about his experience in agriculture, some sort of misconceptions and paradigms that we have in agriculture that can maybe use some change. And we also talk about advice for folks that are building a profitable farm enterprise. So I had so much fun in this conversation and I hope you enjoy. Well, Pork Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Glad to be here. <laughs> All right. So first, um, maybe just um, let's just paint a picture of your background. Where did you grow up? Uh, what are some of your earliest memories being interested in agriculture or nature, anything of that sort? Uh, so I did not come from a farming background. Uh, I tell people that I'm not supposed to be here. Uh, oftentimes when I do a conference presentation, because my experience of agriculture starting out was really not much of an experience. Like um, I used to live not that far away from a Tyson chicken processing plant. So that was like my my experience with big ag as a child is during night times, I could smell the chicken blood and the bleach that would just fumigate the entire area at night when they were cleaning up, you know, but I knew that's a part of living in the country when I used to, but most of my life actually was in the city. So I moved from a semi-rural area to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, which is, we got, I think, a million people at this point. So I really didn't have a lot of access to agriculture, but what I did have an appreciation was for environmental sciences, for nature. And so I was that kid who would, every Saturday, watch Steve Irwin and Jack Johanna. I loved Animal Planet um, and Natural Geographic. And so my love for Nature and seeing animals play dynamic roles in dynamic ecosystems was really big for me. When I went to high school, there were opportunities for me to be a part of like FFA. I thought they were weird because they kept talking about cricket eating contests and trying to grow marijuana in the greenhouse at school. So I was like, oh, no, I'd rather be a part of things like roots and shoots, you know, some biology, academic competitions. So I really didn't get the exposure in agriculture until I went to summer camp programs um, through the USCA. So if you got any kids out there that are, you know, in high school, there's a program called Ag Discovery. It's a competitive program, but if your kid gets in, they have a pick of several different universities where they can spend about, I think, two weeks to a month there. 
and learn a particular subject. Might be veterinary medicine, might be plant pathology, just depends. But for me, that kind of got me acclimate to agriculture, but still didn't click. So then I went to North Carolina A&T, a land-grant institution, and I wanted to be a part of the animal science program. It didn't click that being part of the animal science program meant that I was also part of the uh, School of Agriculture. And so um, being able to do that showed me that farming's not demonic, it's not evil. In the environmental movement, oftentimes the way that agriculture is painted is it's bad, it's ruining the planet. And, and, and to some extent, they're, they're not completely wrong um, because, you know, the way that we practice agriculture today, a lot of soil erosion, right, eutrophication in streams. And so I, I, I knew that that was real, but also knew that we need agriculture to survive. Agriculture is the backbone of all civilization. It started wars. People would literally die because of farmland. People would fight over that. You're still fighting over that. <laughs> but, um, you know, that for me was really important because I saw agriculture being not just farming, but economics, education, entertainment. Um, I saw it being healthcare, And it really showed that everything that I do is connected back to agriculture. So I was fascinated. Um, but I had to get to a point where I needed to reconcile the differences between my love for the environmental sciences and then my newfound love for agriculture. You know, you went to the land grant institution, you spoke with an extension agent, and they were like, listen, if you're going to help farmers, you're going to have to get your hands dirty. You're going to have to know what the work is actually like. So you did that. You went out and got a job on a farm. So talk about where that took you next. This is how pork run got birth um, before I realized that was pork run. Um, so yeah, I was at a point in my academic career where I was getting opportunities to work at big ag companies, but that didn't resonate with my childhood experience seeing, again, animals play dynamic roles in dynamic ecosystems. Um, a lot of commercial ag divorces animals from the land. And so I knew that I needed something different. So I talked to my um, mentor, Mr. Kelly. He was an extension agent director at the time. And he was like, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to help farmers. Um, you know, still broad-eyed, bushy-tailed, unjaded. And he's like, okay, cool. Then go farm. And I was like, oh, at the university farm? Like, go work there part-time? He's like, no, 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 no. Go get an actual job farming for a living. I want you to bleed. I want you to sweat. I want you to cry. And after you do all that, I want you to come back to me and tell me what you learned. And so um, I dropped out of college. My mom did not like hearing that, but you know, it's something that I needed to do. And um, I got to experience the love, passion, but also the hardships of agriculture. Um, you know, my first farm that I eventually got to manage their livestock enterprises was a nonprofit farm. Nonprofit farms are very problematic and we can talk about that. That needs to be a whole other podcast. We need it. We need to have a whole other podcast about that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> whole other podcast. But um, that's where I started out. Eventually I worked for uh, several for-profits and managed their livestock operations. But starting out, we were raising beef cattle. We were raising chickens, buffet hens and broiler chickens, meat chickens. We were also doing rabbits and bees. I didn't care for those, so that got passed on to somebody else. We did goats. I brought in some Spanish goats for meat production. We had a grade A raw dairy operation, and they were goats. If you've ever raised goats, 
you know that it's the most insane thing you could do as a livestock person. Um, and if you haven't raised goats, uh, just raise two. See if you like it. And if you don't like it, because you, you can't love goats or hate goats or say, you know what? I'm kind of in the middle. There is no middle with goats. Either you love them or you hate them. At some point, I got a mastery of the cattle. I had a mastery of chickens. I had a mastery of goats. And I was fine. But we also had pigs. And I, I didn't realize that the way that we were raising pigs were not in the best context for outdoor production. A lot of our in infrastructure was really for cattle, sheep, goats, not really for pigs. But I didn't realize that because of my lack of experience. Um, so they were breaking out of infrastructure, breaking out of enclosures, causing property damage. I could never rein them back in, even when I had feed. And so they were very frustrating for me. So my breaking point was when we had a sow. Her name was Louise, and she was about 600 pounds. She broke out of four different infrastructures and closures while I was gone. So they're like, Ryan, we need you back on the farm. Can you, you, Louise, she keeps breaking out. We can't contain her. We can't contain her. You know, uh, mayday, mayday, mayday. Like they were really trying to get me back. And so, you know, in farming, you don't have a day off. You just kind of always are on duty. So I came back got her in a place where she had plenty of pasture in our isolation pen, plenty of grass, plenty of feed, plenty of water. She had everything she needed and locked her in in our chain link fence gate. I don't recommend chain link fence gate for pigs. Here's why. And felt that I, I saved the day, you know, grandiosity, you know, I'm the hero. Look at me. Finally, I'm victorious. And I'm walking to my, my vehicle and something just didn't feel right. So then I turn around. And I see Louise make this bellowing screech. She's like, tweet, tweet, tweet. And she charges nose, nose first at the gate. What she does though is, because pigs are always digging, they're always doing this motion. So they're using their neck muscles and their shoulder muscles all the time. So she used those muscles and she literally lifted the gate off of its hinges, flung it with her nose 20 feet into the air. I saw that thing literally shoot like a rocket. I'm not exaggerating. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, and I'm just sitting here in amazement and in fear and in awe. It was like an outer body experience. And I saw the metal gate flop down to the ground. There was literally a triangular dent to where her nose met the bottom frame of that gate. So I, I felt defeated because at that point I was like, I give up. I hate pigs. I really hate pigs. I don't want to do a pigs anymore. I'm going to have to move this on to somebody else. I just can't do this anymore. But in a pause, and I think that's where God really showed me I needed to take a moment to just be still. And I see Louise coming. She's trotting in victory. That pigs never trot into her life, but she trots over to me. And she's, you know, making grunting noises. And I get down on one knee. I did not propose Louise. That's weird. Um, but I got down on one knee and grabbed her by her jaws and looked her dead in her floppy eared, big face, beautiful fat pig face. And I said to her, you know what, Louise, I paused. I want to love you so hard that just maybe I understand you because right now I really don't. And that's where pork rind, I believe was born because I started to realize that in order to love something, I need to spend time with it, like quality time. And so I spent a lot of quality time with those pigs up to that point, her and her offspring, watching them just be pigs. And I realized from that, like, oh, 
the reason why they keep doing all these things that are frustrating me is because I'm not doing something. So one thing we have a slogan in recovery is, um, you know, if I'm not the problem, there's no solution. And so I realized that I'm the problem in the situation. I'm not giving them what they need. I need to figure out a better way of providing their needs so that way they can be happy instead of finding happiness elsewhere. Um, you know, and that really was my point of understanding that pigs actually aren't stupid, dirty animals. They're highly intelligent, have the IQ about five-year-old, um, which is why they need constant rotation on pasture, constant stimuli, similar to goats. Otherwise, they start misbehaving like a five-year-old would. Uh, and also, they're not dirty animals. They're actually very hygienic if you give them plenty of space to be hygienic. Except when it comes to a mud wall, they will always choose a mud wall. Uh, and so for me, I saw my own story in that because oftentimes I felt misunderstood, especially as a child, even as a young adult. And I realized, oh, pigs are commonly misunderstood by multiple cultures. I can relate to that pig on that level because I know what it feels like to be misunderstood as a man, what it feels like to me be misunderstood as uh, someone who's African-American in America, um, you know, and I, I want... I want people to understand me. Let me try to understand pigs and maybe I can find a parallel commonality in that. It sounds like to my experience with pigs is the more you try to control the situation, the less control you have. And, you know, I think that's, that's also something that's very much humbled me with working with pigs. It's like, it really tests your, like, there's no forcing it. Like I've tried to, I've tried, trust me, <laughs> almost like broke a limb, you know, trying to load pigs into a trailer. And, and I think, yeah, once I let go of control, I think I read it somewhere, you know, some, I, I tried the brute force method did not work. And somebody told me, put feed in the trailer and, and go have lunch and come back and they'll, they'll be in there when you're done. <laughs> And so <clears throat> it is very humbling because you are working with a creature that does have such an intelligence that you need to work together. So that's, that's really beautiful. And just, so your name is Ryan. You were born with that name. And so, you know, after you started falling in love with raising pigs, people started naturally calling you pork Ryan. Is that how it went? So I tell people, you know, cause they'll come to, at a conference and say, is your, is your name really pork rind? Is, like, that, is that your real name? <laughs> yeah. Did and your mother I, know somehow that you were going to love pigs? <laughs> and so what I'll say is, uh, bless your heart. <laughs> like, like, do you really believe that? Um, but uh, yeah, my, I tell people, you know, my mama gave me rind. I just add pork on top. But yeah, I, so like quick story of my name. My name came from a college, the North Rhine in North Carolina. And my mom thought I was going to be a girl. So this was before ultrasound technology was like at its finest. So here I am, a boy, you know, oh, well, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I'm glad to be a man. Uh, but I, I realized that, um, you know, I just love pigs. I was doing a lot of advocacy work, even with like the National Pork Board and Pork Checkoff, doing some social media things with them while being a regenerative pasture-raised pork operator. So they thought that was weird, but they were like, we still want you to be a part of this because it's interesting and we want your perspective and I wanted their perspective. Um, so after a couple of years of, of doing work with them and advocacy for pig farmers, all pig farmers, people were like, man, you really love pigs. And I think one friend was like, you know, you, it'd be funny if you called yourself pork rind, like your name sounds like a, like a pork rind. And I was like, oh yeah, that'd be so cool. And then I thought about it and I was like, that actually would be interesting. Should I change my Instagram handle 
from, you know, I think it was called The Rhyme to Pork Rhyme. So it first started with like an Instagram handle change to Pork Rhyme or Pork.Rhyme. And then I realized like, oh, this is very brandable. And we can talk about like branding when it comes to farms and and personal brands, um, which I do now. But like understanding like, man, when you have a catchy name and it's brandable, people remember you. Like if I said, hi, my name's Ryan at an event. People are like, oh, okay. Like they'll say, oh, your name's Ryan? (laughs) It's all the time. Versus like, oh, hi, my name's Pork Ryan, the Pork Evangelist. People are like, wait, what? You're who? The what, what? Already I have their attention. Already I'm in their brain. They're trying to figure out who is this person? He just called himself Pork Ryan. Who who does that? You know, and versus like if I just gave my real birth name, you know, would probably not be a very interesting conversation at first, and I'd have to make it interesting, or as in with Pork Ryan, it's interesting out the gate. So I do believe in like personal branding and story building because the reality is as a farmer and as an entrepreneur, it's important for people to be able to very quickly gather people's attentions, whether by who they are or even by their name when they're doing an introduction. So that way they have a captive audience rather than kind of forcing themselves to captivate the person that they're talking to. Yeah, that's something I think it is really nice to have a somebody focus on what does make people pay attention, what does get the message across, because ultimately at the end of the day, that's what's going to stick. And that's the whole purpose of what you're doing. So let's let's talk a little bit about yeah your consulting business. How did this evolve? Like now you're doing speaking engagements, you're doing all these different media, you know, trainings and mentorships. How did this come to be? Good question. Um, for me, it started back in May of 2017, and um, I had just attended like a little workshop. It was like women in agriculture. That's like an association, women in ag little workshop in Waco, Texas, when I used to live in Texas. And I was just there just to be a supporter. Like, I believe women should be in agriculture. Um, You know, I just wanted to show up and give my support. It was her first meeting. And so Dr. Tammy Steele was there and she was like, hmm, you're a young black professional. I like you. Can you speak at my conference that we're having, I think, our first or second conference? Can you speak at that conference in Houston, Texas? It's going to be next year in 2017. I was like, Oh, sure. What do you want me to talk about? She was like, baby, you can talk about anything. I don't care. I just want you to be there uh, because I think you're cool. Oh. Uh, And so I, that was like my first time doing a speaking engagement. And it was like, I think it was called like Pasture Pork 101 or something like that. And it was such an honorable experience to be able to get the opportunity to share my experiences, strength and hope when it came to raising pigs outdoors to educate other people. And from there, I realized like, man, I really love educating. Like my initial degree was animal science because I love animals and I want to kind of figure out what my role would be in that. But through farming and then the speaking engagements, I realized that I actually love educating people a lot more than just simply talking about the science behind it. But I understand the science behind it from an environmental standpoint, an agricultural standpoint, to where I can educate people through that lens. So for me, it was really important to just kind of nurture and grow that. So I have been a professional public speaker for almost six years now. Uh, May of this year, 2023, will be six full years. And I can tell you, it's been an amazing 
definitely sometimes hard experience. Um, you know, in the beginning, it was just kind of a side thing. I just wanted to make connections, make networking and stuff like that. But then eventually, um, after I resigned from my um, program manager role with a organization, I'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, I realized that I'll have a job and this was intentional. Like I'd saved up money. I became debt free before leaving. I gave them a two months notice and I was like, I need to do my own thing because I knew that um, in 2021, I was going to really push in my speaking engagements. So I did contracts with Mother Earth News, did contracts with Applegate, Natural and Organic Meats, and a contract with uh, Homesteaders of America. And for the first time in my life, I was making over $1,000 in those deals. So I was like, okay, I can cover my health insurance by by doing that. Um, so I did leave and I was a little scared about it, but in 2022, I did 20 speaking events. I replaced my, my salary from when I did, uh, was a program manager, replaced it, replaced it. Uh, my highest speaking contract during that time was for two events with one um, one company, and I made eighteen thousand dollars for two Holy events. Holy crap! I know, <laughs> oh I gosh. know. You know, so that's for that's nine thousand, you know, per event. And here's the cool thing: like when it comes to farming and, and being an entrepreneur, oftentimes we want to shortchange ourselves and like charge little amounts. Farmers charging little amounts at farmer's markets, wherever you're selling that. And I realized like, I need to make a living off of this. So I need to charge not just my worth, but also I need to charge what I need to make. Um, so I, my initial ask was 22,000, but my bare minimum was 16,000. Mm. So then the coordinator dropped me down and negotiated to 18,000. Yeah. Cool. I still got $2,000 more. Still walking away with a good chunk of change. Yeah. 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 But I could have asked for a thousand and five hundred like I did the year prior. Instead, mm -hmm. I bumped it up all the way. Uh, so you know, if you don't shoot your shot, you're never gonna you're never gonna make it. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I knew I had to do that. So that was really important. Absolutely, yeah. And it, there is like um, you seem to be good at it too. It seems to be something that you enjoy is like marketing and talking to people. And has that been scary over time? Like learning to yeah refine your message and get better it was do you feel like there was an evolution in yourself do you feel much different after 6 years of doing this there better be an evolution <laughs> i've been doing this for too long um, yeah definitely i went from you know uh, eventually i did get my degree in agricultural education and not that my degree mattered a whole lot to me. I had the actual real world experience mm -hmm. more important than what a degree could offer me. I'm sorry, but that's just reality. It, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but for me, yeah, I did evolve. I, I became more in tune with context. So like we're often taught to teach from a book or just teach simply from your own experience. And I, I think there's some strength in that. Um, but part of the reason why one of my taglines is wisdom without the hogwash is because I believe that as an educator, you really need to be able to teach within someone's context. Mm -hmm. um, so I've met a lot of extension agents who will go into like regenerative agriculture spaces without regenerative agriculture experience or even relationships with anyone in those spaces. And they'll say some things that don't even make sense for our context. Right. 
And so it's just important that you understand people's contents. I remember going to, because uh, I do missions work in East Africa. I go to East Africa, Uganda, and Tanzania every year, just about. And um, I made a recommendation of feeding beans to pigs for a protein source, lysine source. And the villagers like were kind of mumbling amongst themselves. And I was like, okay, well, I don't speak their language, so whatever. And the director came over to me. He was just like, hey, I just want to let you know that um, they're kind of just talking, discussing. And there's a little bit of disheartenment amongst them because you mentioned feeding them beans and they're having a hard time feeding themselves. Wow. As an educator, that broke my heart because I was speaking from an American context on mm-hmm. how to raise pigs, how to raise livestock, not realizing that I need to be more sensitive to my audience and their needs and figure something, another solution out. Um, so that at that moment, I realized I'm not going to make that mistake again. Of course, I made that mistake again a couple other times. But like, <laughs> I'm not perfect, but I'm going to strive to make sure that I make context the most important part. So as a consultant, uh, I'll sit there and take notes, talk with them. And normally the consultation will go from, okay, whether it's a farmer or people who are wanting to do small farm events, I'll help them make somewhere between $15,000 to $150,000 based on what they have available to them. Mm-hmm. Not just some random feasibility study, but like, okay, how big is your herd? Okay, how many animals do you have? How many animals are you going to uh, burf out for this year? All right, what's your feed cost look like? All right, like, and I'm using their context to figure out a business plan and a business model that works for not just their their resources, but also who they are. Not mm-hmm. everyone wants to do agritourism. Never wants to do agroeducation. Never wants wants to do uh, raw meat. So we figure out a way that works for them and plays to their strengths rather than their weaknesses. Agritourism is huge, especially in Colorado. Here, I think that's. Everyone thinks that that's going to be their next step, but I, uh, yeah, that's a whole nother can of worms. Like, do you like doing agritourism? Do you like running those books? Do you like having people coming into your space? And let's, let's talk more about sort of your strategy, things that tangible advice and the way the context that, that, that you see agriculture now. So we've got direct marketing, a lot of people finding that is a really popular channel, diversified, small scale farming with direct marketing. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions about this small scale diversified farming, in your opinion? I'm going to say something that maybe a lot of people don't like, but needs to be said. We need to dismantle our idols in this space. Um, I think for me personally, one of the biggest idols was Joel Salatin, uh, and love the guy I've spoke, you know, with him again, because I'm doing public speaking, he speaks at somewhere between 20 to 30 events. He's at least at five of the events I speak at, if not 10. So I've learned a lot from him when I was in farming and I'll go back into farming later, but he was an inspiration to really get me to love pigs. He was a part of that, you know, but I think. His model has been so, you know, like coveted, like, oh my gosh, like we want the Joe Salatin model. We want to do things like Joe Salatin because Joe Salatin makes a lot of money. Wisdom without the hogwash. What's Joe Salatin's context? Number one, he didn't start the farm. His father did. So he's the one that made Polyface famous. But Joe Salatin's father is the one that started Polyface. You know, and so that's 
again, we talk about personal brand versus farm brand. His personal brands, he leveraged his personal brand of being eccentric and enthusiastic and a good good with, with public speaking to where he pushed traffic to his farm, Polyface. Polyface is not Joel Salomon. Joel Salomon is not Polyface, right? So those are two separate brands, but they work in synergy together and feed into one another. So now Joel Salomon doesn't even live off farm income anymore. He lives off of his speaking engagements. Again, I told you I make I made $18,000 with two events with one company, right? He makes more money than I do. <laughs> so you can imagine. He also does, um, he did in a big beginning, like seminars, like DVD, VHS seminars. And now he continues to evolve with the times where he's doing an online course. Well, guess what? His latest online course is $1,000. Let's do the math on that real quick because I, I love doing math and numbers and consultations. So uh, $1,000. Let's say he only gets five people a month to buy that. That's $5,000. Let's say, you know, that happens every single time in a year. That's $60,000. Now, here's reality. He has more people than that buying every month from him in that course. So just from online courses alone, he is making very good money, livable income. He has no need to live off of his farm income. But a lot of people just think, oh, well, Polyface is just this, this place that's making a lot of money. Yes, they do make good money. I have an understanding just with talking with them of what their numbers look like. They're always constantly pivoting, um, but they're not stagnant. And that's one thing that a lot of farmers in regenerative agriculture don't realize is they want to find a sweet spot and then stay in that sweet spot forever. And the reality is you need to constantly adapt and evolve in order to make it in this business. So the models of the old ways that I like to say is you need a lot of land to be like Joel Salomon. You need a lot of land, right? Whether you inherit land, buy land, Ooh, buying land as a young farmer, good luck. Finding land access as a young farmer, good luck. All right, number two, you need to have access to capital, resources, getting a loan. Huh, well, what about that college degree that you don't even use anymore, that you have, what, thirty dollars to $100,000 in debt on? That affects, that affects it. Or medical bills, that makes it harder to even, even want to access loans because you have all these other bills. And then number three is a large labor force. For Joel Salvin, again, wisdom without the hogwash. His context is, his labor force is virtually free and was for a very long time where you just had interns that because of his personal brand would work for him for, for basically nothing. His personal brand had so much power that people would work for him for virtually for free. That's the power of a personal brand. That's the power of branding. So that's the context. A lot of lands, a lot of resource to capital and a large labor force. Do you have that as a small farm? For many of us, the answer to that question is hell no, right? So what I like to teach is what I consider really the future of scalability and profitability when it comes to a small farm is agritourism, but we're not talking about just weddings. Really, the way that I describe agritourism is how do you create memorable experiences on your farm that you pay for? Most of them that you pay for, not all of them needs to be paid. Agroeducation, 
how do I train people in life skills? I call them life skills. That could be butchery, that could be in canning, that could be in a variety of things um, that you're good at, naturally good at, or things that you can learn along the way and be an expert in and teach other people. And then number three, uh, high-end value-added products. So how do we turn a raw commodity that we might be producing into a high resource value? An example of that is my friend Katie, she owns Alluvial Farms, her and her partner Matt, they do a lot of good work, but they use the hemp production that they do and the pigs. That's it. They don't do any more than that. It's just hemp and pigs. We'll talk about diversification a little bit, but doing hemp and pigs, they found a way of merging that together with synergy by creating a skincare product in a skincare line where they're using lard from their pigs, pasture pork, and CBD oils that they extract from their hemp. Ah. Oh. So now we have a shelf-stable product, shelf-stable product from a product that a lot of people wouldn't buy. A lot of people aren't buying lard. If they are buying it, it might be $5 a quart. And for some people, they can charge $10 to $20 a quart because they have a market that just loves lard. You know, but she's charging, when I first consulted her, she was charging $28 for 2.5 ounces. Again, I like using math. They help illustrate things. So I think there were 16 ounces in the pounds. Okay, cool. So then, you know, uh, two, 16 divided by 2.5, or that's 6.4 times that by $28. She's making almost $180 a pound on something like lard. She's putting a little bit of CBD oil, a little bit of beeswax, uh, and some other essential oils in, but she's making almost $180 a pound. Can you make $180 a pound on whatever you're producing? Right. For a lot of y'all, the answer is no to that. Yeah. And and I feel like there's a huge frustration in farming that these raw goods are like people, our society is not one that values home cooking as much as other cultures, as much as we used to. And so I think there's a lot of frustration in the community, like, oh, people should just cook more and, and, and kind of, there's like an anger that builds, you know, and I... And I don't think it's very helpful at some point because it's like you're still going to reach the same customers whether you're mad about it or not. It's unfortunate that farmers have to be responsible for, like, I mean, birthing the animal, raising the animal, butchering the animal, getting those cuts back, processing them, packaging them, then selling them again. <laughs> like, it's just, it feels really overwhelming to think that that's all that burden needs to be on the farmer. But I don't know. It just seems like there's not really a choice anymore. Like that's what the market demands and no, no sense in getting upset about it. <laughs> so I would not disagree, but I would challenge that, that, that statement of, cause what I've learned is, Oh, this is just how the market is. And yeah, but the issue is we're, we're using, we're using old tools. We don't live in the era that a lot of our progenitors and regenerative agriculture live in. This is a completely different area, you know? So I tell people, we need to stop trying to just educate consumers and, and force feed them thinking that that's actually going to change. Don't get me wrong, you can definitely evangelize some people into that. It, it does happen, it's true. But when you actually see what are their needs? When I do consultations, I tell people that a lot of times we become unintentional narcissists. And we wonder why we get frustrated when people don't want to buy our products or our services. And the reality is we have to take a look in the mirror and say, am I being entitled right now? Did When I produced this product, 
did I even ask anyone if they needed it? And that's, a, that's one of the greatest sins a lot of farmers make is we're just like, we just love the lands. I, I tell people in my inquiry as a consultant, why do you farm? And I hear all these beautiful stories about, oh, I just love the land or I had a health crisis, but being able to farm helped me get back in the shape, helped me heal from certain diseases that I didn't think I would be able to heal from. Or this has been in our land for generations or family for this land has been in our family for generations. And there's all these beautiful stories. But the issue with them is they're all I stories. What about your customer's story? And that's the biggest problem is we focus so much on how the we need to make money to feed ourselves. I get it. You should make money to feed yourself. But the primary purpose of a business is not to make money. <gasps> Shocker. The primary purpose of a business is to serve a need. And your compensation for that is monetary gain, is profitability, is money, right? So I, I tell folks, you know, and this is a slogan I use in my own personal recovery, is if you try to control the outcomes, the outcomes will control you. And so if the goal is, uh, you know, really to feed my, my needs, my resources, don't get me wrong, you should definitely be a part of that equation, but you shouldn't be the only part of that equation. So if you're like, oh, well, I'm going to feed me, guess what? I've met people who will be dishonest and lose their integrity because the outcome was for them to be fed and, and have all their needs met rather than being of service to people. Mm -hmm. So it's unfortunate. And then they get into entitlement because they're like, well, I'm producing one of the best products in, in my county, in my city. Why won't people buy my product? Why are you being entitled? Again, did you ask anybody that they need your product? Answer that question is no. You get mad at that person who's drinking a $15 Starbucks coffee. They're not even going to finish, but they will <laughs> scoff at you. They will scoff at you when you're like, oh, well, I charge uh, $10, $12 a pound for pork. Far more nutritious than that Starbucks coffee, but they're going to scoff at you because they don't really need pork, raw pork. They want convenience. How can you leverage the convenience aspect? I got um, clients who switch from selling raw to now they do breakfast sandwiches at the farmer's market and they're making way more money with less ingredients per pound. Mind blowing because they're serving a need. People want to be fed at a farmer's market. They want the experience of being at a farmer's market, not to really buy a raw product at the farmer's market. Hopefully that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with that, I'll pass. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, you know, we talked with a previous podcast where I spoke to um, Jeffrey Van, he, he works at Rogue Farm Corps, and we were talking about how it does feel like a lot of farmers go into this being like, this is what the land needs. This is what I want. This is, I'm passionate about raising sheep or whatever you raise. And it's hard because, yeah, it's almost like you have to build the business first and see what the, what the customers need and then work backwards. <laughs> wow. You're giving me a face that people can't see. <laughs> wow. I mean, it sucks though, doesn't it? I mean, it kind of sucks. It's just something that I think you're right. A lot of people don't want to hear because it's like, I, you feel like, especially being a land steward, you know, especially with, when you have a land base, looking at that land base and saying, oh, I, a certain animal will really benefit this land base. And here are my resources. I think the, the the hardest thing for me is figuring out that middle step, like processing food. That's to me very terrifying. Knowing the regulations that I know, I feel very squeezed. Like raw meat is the easiest and 
just like most common sense way to sell products from a farm. And so how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you go about advising people to get into food processing? Mm, good, good question. Uh, sometimes I, I don't advise them into food processing. So, and again, you have a bunch of options. Um, normally I tell them to talk and get, a, get an understanding of the law and regulations. Every state's department of agriculture will have their regulations and guidelines. I do not necessarily recommend trusting the county uh, health inspector. The reason why is if you're doing something outside of what they're accustomed to, they'll just make up stuff. And it might be wrong or right. You don't really know. So you need to have more knowledge and understanding than that uh, health department agent who's been doing this for 20 years. But again, they don't have wisdom without the hogwash. They don't understand context because they've been trained to, to look at things in a certain mold. And so it's hard for them to look at something outside that. So they're going to deem that as, as a problem rather than as a solution when it comes to economic incline in their local area. So I think that's the biggest thing. Understand the laws and regulations. Feel free to get some legal counsel as well. There are several different organizations who focus on helping farmers with legal counsel, uh, legal defense, and legal wisdom when it comes to how they can be profitable and, again, protect their farm for certain liabilities. So I highly recommend checking out those resources. Um, and there are different associations that do that as well. But sometimes the answer is not, not food processing, like doing it yourself. Um, sometimes like, for example, a pig, usually the economic value of a pasture raised pig is between a thousand to a thousand five hundred dollars. Some of y'all are like, Oh, I didn't realize that because I'm selling my retail cuts. My toll is a lot cheaper than that. Well, please increase your prices, sir, ma'am, please increase your prices. But you know, uh, the issue that people run into is I can't find processing. It's going to be another six months to a year and a half before my processor will have me available. I'm small scale. I can't bring in animals in bulk. So therefore, they don't really want to work with me as well. Okay, cool. How about this? Again, I like using math. So let's do some numbers real quick. How about instead you host a butchery class or a dinner? Again, the bottleneck in processing is not, is not killing the animal. The bottleneck in processing is having to cut it up into pieces. That's, that's the bottleneck because there are not a lot of skilled labor uh, when it comes to that. So I work with processors as well. And I sit on niche meat processors assistance network. I sit on their board. So I have a good understanding of that. And so uh, I have some clients who they just said, you know what? We're just going to have a dinner or do a butchery processing. Okay. So let's say you charge $500 for a butchery class per person. Per person. That's actually a really reasonable class because it's a reasonable life skill. Uh, and let's say you get usually eight people is 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 a max for most people. But let's say it's an all-day thing. They're learning how to butcher a pig for the whole day. Well, that's four thousand dollars. Remember, I told you that the economic value of a pig, this is across the country, economic value for a pig on average is somewhere between a thousand to a thousand five hundred dollars. I just said you can make $4,000 in one weekend. Again, the economic value for that pig is retail cuts, which it might take you up to six months to sell all that. You can make $4,000 in one day. Yeah. I've always wondered about butchery workshops. It seems like an insurance nightmare or like, in a, I don't know, like somebody's going to tell me I can't do that. What's your experience with that? Well, in business, there will be a lot of people that tell you there are a lot of things you can't do. And I think the <laughs> just reality, seriously. You're going to have haters on top of that. 
So what I tell people is understand your liability. Get please for the love of God, get insurance. Love of God. Uh, and also uh, waiver forms, really important. Don't make the waiver form yourself. Get get legal counsel making a waiver form that will help cover your bases. And if that happens, you got the insurance plus a waiver form for people who are going to get into that. There have definitely been people who almost stabbed themselves because they're learning how to butcher. And that's why it's important as an educator that um, you're training people on proper knife technique. And you have to have a watchful eye. You've got to be consistent. you got to make sure that people are learning. Don't do kids. They can watch from a distance. They should not be holding a knife. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to like whole hog butchery or even poultry butchering, which is a lot easier to do. Um, you can make similar amount of money doing a couple of chickens rather than slaving, trying to figure out how I'm going to sell whole birds at my local farmer's market when people don't even want my product. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, wisdom about the hogwash, figure out what your liabilities are, uh, create really awesome waiver forms that help cover your bases and also help protect them as well. And then just get good at the craft. And understand what you need to do. Sometimes you're like, I don't, I don't even want to do this, but you know someone who can. And then you say, you know what? I'm going to charge a certain amount of money. They'll get a cut. They'll get a thousand five hundred, two thousand. It will split 50-50, right? You're not even doing any of the work. You're just watching and observing, and you're just passively making income using your farm as a space. You know, we're talking about really getting into options for small scale producers. Because I feel like a lot of businesses, well, it's just a natural progression of any business, right? Like getting bigger is like pushing to get larger. And then you're getting more land and more product and then reaching this point where you are this massive entity. I'm wondering if you have experience with successful small scale or medium scale farms. Like, Are there models out there for a sustainable path, a a sustainable model? Because it just seems like oh, small scale is just where you start and then you end up big. Like you just have to keep getting bigger. So are there, yeah, do you find people who just keep to stay small and figure it out and find themselves um, making a living for themselves? Yeah, so the answer to that question, yes. There are people who are doing that. What they've realized is, and similar to what I've realized is they can make more money doing less things or putting in less man hours. Uh, Again, they figure it out through agritourism. They can figure it out. They've been figuring it out through agroeducation. They also have been figuring it out through high end value added products. Um, so whether they're hosting trainings, whether they're um, doing dinners, and they're not even doing any of the cooking, they just have a local chef friend who does the cooking, and they give them a cut out of the revenue from that. Or they're doing uh, certain value added products, or working with someone who does value added products, and they're getting their product back. They get a cut out of that, but they're getting their product back and they can ship it across country. So I think the biggest thing is, again, burning our idols in the farming community who generally are people who have a lot of lands, have a lot of capital resource, including loans and good credit, and have access to to labor, a lot of labor, usually for free. You know, because, again, a lot of these farms have good personal brands or good farm brands that attract people for free onto their farm to work for them in exchange for learning. Um, So again, the power of the brands. I have folks who, similar to me as an agro-educator, are making uh, a a very livable income just from doing online courses. They've been been doing farming for years, 
And they weren't able to scale up as well because they just had limited land access. Or for a lot of them, they're getting older. They don't want to manage more land. They don't want to manage more livestock. And so they've had to figure out really creative ways. I have some friends who uh, decided to do just different trainings and sharing their experience for, you know, hey, come check out how to raise a pig for uh, $150 for that day. And then you get an audience of 20 to 30, even 50 people. And these people are using a lot of social media marketing, including YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Some people are even using TikTok as a way. So this is the new age. This is where people are getting information, not in ads on in your local newspaper. No, not in ads at the local tractor supply. No, they're doing it through social media because that's where most of the eyeballs are at. And so I highly recommend if you want to diversify and be a part of the new age of not just agriculture, but the new age of civilization, then it's going to be really important to make sure that you have a good grasp of social media or work with someone, even your own kid, who has a better grasp of social media than you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a huge thing, man. So much resistance to, I feel like there's still resistance to TikTok. I'm curious what that's going to look like in five years. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And full disclosure, I don't like TikTok. I'll make that very clear. (laughs) But if you can use it to your advantage, go for it. It's sort of a, a bigger question. We've got a lot of apprentices that are starting their season pretty soon here. I'm always looking in this podcast to transfer nuggets of knowledge down to them. So what do you have any advice for folks that are maybe getting into this for the first time, starting to understand what this industry looks like? Any helpful advice to help them keep their mindset in a positive direction? So here, here's what I'll say. I'll use one experience. I'll just be vulnerable and honest as I can. The first farm that I worked at, you know, this was supposed to be an educational experience for me. And and that was in our in our contract, in our agreement, it was an understood that, that I was supposed to learn, not just, uh, yeah, do a whole lot of work, but I'm also supposed to be getting active education from them as well. Um, and the reality is they didn't in a lot of ways. And part of the reason why was they were going through staffing transitions and and lulls in that. And so then they were neglecting a lot of their apprentices and interns, you know, and eventually, you know, I kind of got dumped all the responsibilities of entire different enterprises, which was fine. Like I, I wanted to be successful in that. Um, so I took that on and, and led in all the, all the management when it came to livestock, cause we didn't have a livestock manager. So that, Hey, that's me. I'm the, I'm, I'm that. And so I wasn't getting paid for, for my worth. So that's another thing. And I was burning out. There were a lot of times where I was slowly drifting away from my community, you know, because we were all living together. So I was drifting away from my community to the point where we had a sit down meeting, which I think we would do either weekly or monthly or every other week. And one person was asking me, like, what do you do all day? Because they don't see me around. They don't they don't know what I do. And I was insulted by that because I was like. I'm literally out here. This is Texas, so you sweating. You're sweating in Texas. It's not. It's not like Mississippi or North Carolina, where 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 those states sweat on you just because of humidity. Like, no, you're legitimately burning your butt out there working like a dog. And so I I realized at that point, like they don't know who I am, I, and I I don't really care to know who they are because all I'm focused on is farming. That's all I want to focus on. I was missing lunches because we would do community lunches. I'd show up late. I wouldn't show up at all. I'd just eat my lunch 
hours later because there was work that I needed to get done. And I was just drifting away from the community that I really needed to be a part of. Um, you know, I was very direct um, and unapologetic about being direct. And so as an apprentice, it's good to understand the culture. Um, and so I was just like, oh, I can make this work. I can, I can, I can do this. I can keep, I just gotta keep working harder. And it got to the point where I was burning out. I was becoming uh, tired. I was really short with people. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't nurturing at all. And it got to a point where uh, management staff uh, asked me to leave. Um, so my encouragement is don't, don't be a wet blanket. You know, have a spine, right? You're going to have to do hard work in farming, but understand that when your mental health, spiritual health, emotional health start being coming very disturbed, you really need to consider taking a step back in your role, whether that's you, need, you want to get demoted or you want to have a lighter load and you just face the consequences for that, whatever that might be. Um, or you say, you know what, this is just not for me right now and I need to take care of myself. Um, the reason why I did not immediately go back into farming on my own after those experiences is because I need to heal. So for me, I'm a part of 12-step recovery. I realized that I was not living in my peak because I... Um, Personally, had a lot of codependency. Um, also, had addictions to sex and pornography, addictions to alcohol. I was a social drinker. I would only drink socially, but I wasn't myself when I would drink. I was drinking because I was uncomfortable with who I was. Um, so, a lot of people think they can just go into farming and escape their problems and their lack of identity or identity crises. And the reality is, no, it just exposes all that stuff. It makes all that stuff even worse. It stresses all that stuff. Now that can be an opportunity to grow if you if you so choose to let it be an opportunity to grow, or it ends up being an opportunity for just pure and utter disaster. And so I'm grateful that I'm at a place in recovery uh, when it comes to all of my sobrieties where I'm able to now consider buying land, buying a farm property and buying land and starting over again. However, I have a healthy expectation of I don't need to put this burden on myself that the farm needs to be my only source of income. Who, who gave me that lie? Who, who, who told me that all my income needs to come from farming? No, I make very good money as a consultant. I make very good money as an agro-educator, as a public speaker, as an entertainer. And so I'm not going to put that burden on myself. I'm not going to put the burden on the farm that I'm going to have someday in the next year or two. I'm going to let the farm just grow naturally, grow slowly, as it should, and then just continue building up that brand on the farm and using my personal brand to attract people onto the farm to, and to help, you know, kind of um, aggregate that exposure and aggregate that marketing. So hopefully that helps any of you guys who are interns. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, my my last question, I guess, was, yeah, what's what's next for you? It sounds like you're going coming back into farming. And and I like that that expectation. I think just hearing your stories of your apprenticeship, I think it's really important to get a, a vast array of experiences in agriculture because some people you know some people even if you were selling tires it wouldn't really be fun working with them <laughs> you know it and they might create that culture on the farm that's just not your that's not your thing you know and so if you don't if you find an operation you work for that you don't really like I don't know there's there's other ways to do it and then you, you have the opportunity to make something yourself too and to kind of take all those lessons that you've learned so yeah in your next chapter you, you're going to continue speaking possibly start a, f a farm again what might that look like so pigs will definitely be on the farm i think um 
to give kind of a glimpse of where I'm at now with the idea uh, is, yes, there's definitely going to be a focus on agroeducation, agritourism. I'm not so much sure about high-end value-added products because I don't know if that's really how I want to start. That would really depend on just my comfort zone and, and how I feel about them. I believe that they're a very profitable avenue for especially byproducts. Um, I just don't know if like I'm really the kind of person who wants to do that because I already like I have merchandise for like my, my hoodie and stuff like that um, and my shirts, but I, I don't I don't even push those sales. And what I've learned is like, you know what, I have something that I don't really care to do on my website. Maybe I need to get rid of that because I don't care to push merchandise. I'd rather do other things. Um, so I think when it comes to a diversified farm, there needs to be synergy. And the best way to have synergy is through really, I say two, really no more than three different enterprises as one person. Um, it's hard to have synergy when you have five different enterprises. It's, it, but again, like I mentioned, Katie from Alluvial Farms, she does hemp and pigs. And she was able to find excellent synergy with those two when it came to CBD lard skincare products. Um, you know, when you're doing 5,000 different things, it's hard to figure out what's the synergy because you're trying to keep all of them afloat, even though there are some that clearly are just not as profitable, even though you keep telling yourself that they are. So for me, um, agro-education, I want butchery classes. I want, you know, uh, come pet the pig days for the local people, you know, and they might, I might even charge for that. I just want to create a lot of buzz, marketing and attention on my farm uh, because good PR is good PR. Um, and you get people to have relationships with you without really there being a monetary buy-in. And that's really important um, in social branding is not everything that I do needs to be monetary. Now I need to have strategy behind monetary, monetizing what I do. Um, but there are times where like I've spoken at events for free. And I believe that God's helped me out on the back end by giving me other opportunities to make more money through those events. Not every conversation I have is a consultation conversation. Now I might make it a consultation conversation because like I realize, dang, you're really not going to make money on this. Let me warn you just in advance, but I'm not trying to make money from them. I'm just, Hey, let me just serve you really quickly. If that's okay. If you don't mind. And then, you know, I, I don't ask for money if they want to give me money for giving free advice. It's totally cool. But ultimately a lot of times that comes back in the future and people are like, you know, you helped me so powerfully even without charging me that I, I want to work with you in a more intimate setting with my business or, Hey, I, I, I gave your name out to somebody who needs your services and would love to work with you full time for a year. So I believe in that aspect. Uh, agritourism will, I believe, be a part of that farm because I want to do more Airbnbs. I think that's not necessarily the future. Um, and the way Airbnbs are kind of changing makes me question whether or not I want to do that. But I at least want to have a space where if people come to an event, well, guess what? There's an Airbnb on the farm. I can give them a small discount for, for you know, being at the event and booking Airbnb. And that's, again, another way of generating income. Some people just want to get away and pet pigs. Cool. Great. I got that opportunity for you. So, yeah, I want people to be connected uh, with God through creation and 
Um, I think the best way of that is by getting them on the property, getting them on the land as much as possible or helping other people to do the same on their operations. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, Porkrine, thank you very much for all of your wisdom and your vulnerability and sharing all of your experiences. We really appreciate you being on the podcast. So thanks for joining us. Appreciate you too, Taylor. And uh, for all you guys, um, I guess if you want to check me out, feel free to go to uh, Porkrine on Instagram, also Facebook, and I'm doing a YouTube channel. You can find that through Porkrine Media. Uh, and there'll be a channel where I will put out all my consultation videos. So that way, maybe you're timid about you know doing consultations with me or somebody else. This will help give you a free resource on maybe something you're doing and figure out a way how you can be profitable when it comes to agroeducation, agritourism, and high-end value-added products. Thank you again, Taylor, for your service. I really appreciate you. And as always, see you! See Thanks, Mark Ryan. If you're looking for a way to get involved in regenerative agriculture, whether that is through a job, internship, educational event, or conference, you have come to the right place. Kivira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community, and we love to share job, internship, and apprenticeship opportunities with our community through this podcast and our monthly newsletter. You can sign up for that newsletter at kiviracoalition.org get e-news. Snaplands is hiring a rangeland field technician. This is a seasonal position from now through October. The position consists of conducting rangeland monitoring and data entry for managers seeking to sustain, restore, or gain regenerative status on agricultural lands. This position requires extensive travel within the Great Plains and Rocky Mountain region throughout the duration of this position. To find out more, visit snaplands.com. Central Colorado Conservancy is hiring a natural resources conservation manager. This person will be responsible for advancing conservation and natural resource programs and providing technical assistance to private landowners in Lake County, Colorado. To learn more, visit centralcoloradoconservancy.org. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Become a Patreon supporter by visiting kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts. We'd also like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Mulia, Lynn Whitbeck, and Caroline called. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the land. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel-Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. <laughs>